Welcome to the Deliciously Alive podcast, where we explore what's possible when we allow ourselves the full human experience. My name is Sarah Campbell, and I'm your host. Each week, my guests and I will be sharing real and actionable insights on how to tap into your desires, feel truly alive, adventurous, and inspired to take action. I believe to my core that a vibrant, radiant, delicious life is possible for you. So pull up a comfy seat or join me on your favorite walk and we'll take this wild, messy, brilliant journey to living a life that lights us up together. Welcome, welcome. We are so excited to have you here. Today is going to be a really interesting episode and one I think that a lot of us shy away from. There's sometimes those hard conversations. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think it's a necessary one to have. And so my guest today is Joey Pagano, and he is a licensed social worker, a therapist, professor, and certified recovery specialist with over a decade of experience in the drug and alcohol field. He's also a recovering addict who is the author of three books, including no Addict Left Behind. It's a recovery medicine state of mind, which is going to be released on April 25th of this year. So 2023, both in stores and online. And Joey's story encompasses the clinical, the medical, and the personal experiences of the stigma of addiction and recovery medicine in our country. Joey, thank you for being here. Hey, I'm just glad to be here, Sarah. Looking forward to the show. Yeah, absolutely. So Making sure no addict is left behind is a really personal mission for you, obviously, mm-hmm. especially with your years of experience as a mental health and drug and alcohol therapist, and then having experienced addiction firsthand. When we talk about a world in which no addict is left behind, what does left behind or not left behind look like from your perspective? Well, looking at those words from my perspective, it's just about not giving up on someone no matter what. See, in well, I'll just split this up in the, in the different perspectives. When I look at that from a clinical perspective, sometimes people require higher level of cares, meaning maybe they need different treatment, uh, what, you know, something they present. And we have a lot of stigma and it just surrounds addiction, surrounds treatment, it surrounds recovery. And there's a lot of practitioners, there's a lot of physicians that they just want to give up on someone. They, they just might not need it. They might not want it. They need a higher level of care. And that person gets left behind. And left behind means they just fall through the cracks because that addict is a human being. And they might not be ready for whatever that treatment they need. And it's about meeting people where they're at. I might say clinically they need something, but it's about self-determination, right? And, and looking at it from like a social work lens. That's what it is. It's about like trauma-informed care principles like safety and trustworthiness and collaboration and and self-determination and and like core principles that I try to live by. It's about meeting that person there. And it also just applies with a parent. You might have to love that person from, from a distance, right? But leaving them behind is just giving up on that person. And they might've just hurt you. They might've did Addiction does a lot of things, but if we could just love someone in whatever capacity would be the most efficacious at that time, that's what we got to do. Like I said, when you're in addiction, 
I always say that that person gets sucked the life right out of you. I call them like they might be like a spiritual vampire, right? And that unconditional love will just it's a killer as much as it's like so vital. But like I said, is my mom had to love me from a distance. So she didn't leave me behind. She didn't give up on me, right? But she loved me in a way where it didn't enable me, but it didn't kill me at the same time. Mm, that is such an interesting distinction. It, it struck me, actually. I heard this probably, I don't know, six months ago or something like that. It was mm-hmm. a notable public-facing influencer of sorts in, in the personal development field. And they were talking about their own experience with addiction. Mm-hmm. And their post, and I won't, I don't have the the exact words, but the way that they were presenting it was that sometimes the best thing that you can do for someone in that moment is to create that mm-hmm. separation yeah. and remove yourself as the crutch or or whatever it is, leave that space for that person mm-hmm. to deal with it. And to me, that felt at first, when I first heard it, I was like, ooh, harsh, like leave them to deal with it on their own. Yeah. But how do you, how does somebody create that safe space or that or have that love and then also create that space for someone to go through the healing that they need to without you being a direct participant on the daily all right as in my book well first let me just like my disclaimers like there's no cookie cutter process to anybody's recovery right and i don't represent any modality of recovery period right no matter even my own right i'm not here to represent that i'm here to just say that like we just meet people where they're at, whatever they will agree with in some form of harm reduction and whatever that is. But the safe space, it's just, I gave examples of my book and my mom, she had to like find that and kind of shape her own beliefs. She had, to, I had to overdose right next to her. Like it, it, the whole scene's told from my mom's words, right? In the first person when I overdosed next to her and she still wanted to love me and I didn't get clean at that moment. But she had to learn. She's like, listen, like, no has to be a complete sentence, right? Was one, two. She had to like, like, listen, you got to leave the house and you got to go, you got to go, and you could come back where there's treatment. And she had to just come to her own terms to where whatever's going to happen, so be it. Like that, she couldn't control that anymore. That I was going to kill her, in other words, by just like sucking the love out of her, right, and just mm. mentally overwhelming her to where she'd have to commit. Listen, my father committed himself one time because I drove them so crazy. And like, literally, when you got addiction in there, you will go nuts. And if you're a parent, right, they're not in addiction. So they're just like, what's going on? Like stuff just doesn't make sense. So like, you have to reach a point where you love them, right? They love me. That's what I mean. They love me, but like, you got to go. And when you reach that breaking point, you have to just come from like safety is like almost accepted. You accept whatever's going to happen. And this would be the same as like, as a clinician, mm-hmm. easy for me because I'm a recovering addict. I'm easy able to see maybe a couple steps down the line because I've, I walk them similar path, but I have to say, okay, well, I can't enable them. And they just want to continue using, okay? I can't force, if they're not ready to get clean, I can't say the right thing to them. But if they're ready to get clean, I can't say the wrong thing to them. So I have to trust 
when they tell me on the phone, listen, you know, and I say, hey, why don't you do some inpatient treatment? You're using heroin every day. And, but I can't, I can't like, once again, if they're not ready, no matter what I say. Okay. So I have to just trust that, listen, Joey, you could drop off Narcan, life-saving drug, naloxin, right? And mm-hmm. I said, okay. And I have to trust. That's all I can do sometimes. Like they're not mandated, right? Like I can't stop them from using, right? Or anything like that. And they're not criminally forced to do anything. I just have to trust some of these processes is going to be okay. Same way that my mom did. They didn't like, I don't, right? She didn't like, I don't like what I'm doing sometimes. And I, I wish I could just hand people clean time, but that does not, <laughs> that's not how the world works. But we have to trust. And that's where like that comes in, like a safe space. It's not the safest, but I have to pretty much just un- realize like that sometimes that's as good as it's going to get, Sarah. Yeah, I think from a practitioner level, it is that trust that you're doing the best you can with what you have and yeah. where that person is at. And from a family member perspective, it's a little bit, I guess, probably of the balance of yeah. Unconditional love for your family member mm-hmm. and also self-preservation. Yeah. Where you're trying to trying to show up at your best for for your life as well. Yeah, that's such a tricky balance. So you talk about empathy, compassion, and understanding as a necessary part of long-term recovery. Yes. Why are those elements so critical to the process? Because the antithesis of those, right? The opposite of those. It's a dark place where none of that is there, right? Like, it's just, I mean, I just got, I have to just look back at my life. Like I lived in this closet in this corner, right? And it was always dark and it was nothing filled, but it was nothing but addiction and trauma. And it was wanting to kill myself every other day, stuck in addiction for like 21, 22 years. And there was none of that. And I didn't love myself or you knew what love was or anything like that. But I have to look at like the opposite of that might pull me out of there. So I know what I needed to feel. For me staying clean, I had to feel some connection, some empathy, compassion. Like that's the kind of stuff that get that kept me in my own program. That's the stuff that like the clients tell me that helped them, right? And that's the things that I just know this stuff for a fact. And I'd have to say, because like I said, of my experience. So I have to say that. Without that, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, it's interesting because it's there's a lot of stigma and shame. I mean, we kind of touched on that a little bit already, but yeah. that comes up in this experience. And there's no doubt in my mind that a healthy support system can impact someone's experience in making this change. So there's the the empathy, the compassion, the understanding from the support system. And then yeah. I think to a degree, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that same empathy, compassion, and understanding coming from your own self or yourself can yeah. be just as important as as it is coming from others. Yeah. Is yeah. that the case? Like you had to internalize that for yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. And I had to do it first. You know, mm. once I was able to, I couldn't love anybody else until like I had some, some kind of love for myself. Otherwise, it would just be superficial because I was hollow inside. And for so long. So that's kind of, I mean, that's how I look at it as, and I, and I would sure that like, I'm not unique. I am, but I'm not, you know what I mean? So as I talk to my clients, I would think that like, they're so similar. I might have all this education and 
but like we all use, we all hurt, right? And that's kind of like how I related to. Yeah. I mean, education is, you know, we have not, I haven't gone down the path that you have to a degree, but it's starting out kind of in the same social work kind of arena. And so there's the education that's, of course, so important, Mm -hmm. but experience Mm -hmm. is the best teacher. And you don't want to say, oh, have this experience. So you can't, like, that's a painful experience to have, painful learning lessons, but it really and truly is. And so the degree of empathy that you can show up for your. I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have empathy. You couldn't. You just, you don't. I mean, for me, it hasn't been a, a direct experience of my own, but in mm-hmm. my close family circle. And so yeah. from that lens, it's really an interesting, like you just, it's your empathy muscles. You're building those empathy muscles yeah. in going yeah. through that situation, but you just don't have the perspective. You just yeah. can't. It's just one of those things. But when you say, because you talked about not really being able to get, like there's kind of a tipping point. You had to get to a certain place internally before mm-hmm. you can make a change when, so how does someone step into the awareness that a change might really serve their well-being and get ready to embrace the discomfort? Is it needing the support system first? And you kind of talked about maybe no, like, is it an internal commitment regardless of who's around? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I did was get a support system. You know, yeah. I, I got support system that were, you know, people, people that like just pushed me up. Right. And people that were, they didn't give up on me. I had those for a long time. I mean, here and there, the people that bridges that I didn't burn. But, you know, once I got in my own program and, and everything and just, you know, finding people that believed in me. And, and then I got active in like in service and just like different aspects, tons of aspects of service, just like uh, all over the community and everything. And I think as time and I just continually worked on myself and those internal changes, I was working on them but I had the support system backing me up, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have to, I didn't have what was going on and through active addiction decades through that, which was, there was no promises kept when the money and drugs ran out, you know, and that's right. all it was, right? So that's, there, there was nothing but like low self-worth and, and no self-esteem, you know, and things like that, you know, a lot of acquaintances, you know, I don't think I had any friends, real friends in 20, I don't know, 21 years. So in active before active addiction, you know, I had people in high school that I, but like I said, it's it's nothing. So I mean it was just acquaintances through addiction, sadly. Yeah, but I mean, I think that it's funny you said, you know, I'm not unique, but like you are unique, but your experience mm-hmm. isn't unique. So I think, you know, listening to this podcast, I feel that that's probably something that lands. That's probably something that feels familiar to someone who's going through that similar experience. So thank you for sharing. It's kind of like that one-two punch when you think about the support system and the internal commitment, I guess, then. It's like you have to be mentally there where you're like, okay, enough's enough. And at the same time, get the support system in place. And it's really interesting you said about being a service because I think, you know, we kind of underestimate the it's scientifically proven that we get more endorphins and more like dopamine hits from giving or serving yeah. others than we even do receiving a gift. And so that's a really cool and interesting part of your journey or part of your path, mm-hmm. because it's not one thing that you would, that you would necessarily say, okay, I need a, to get further. I need to be of service, but 
probably in being of service, it probably benefited your journey so much, would you say? Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with, listen, service has built me. Everything I have in my life is a direct result of helping someone else. Everything in service has become for those I serve. And that's what it has been. And and like I said, my book tells a lot of journeys of my of, of my service, like all over, you know, how when I became president of a, a nonprofit recovery group called Club Serenity Inc. And I helped write grant. Listen, I, I didn't have any, I barely graduated high school. I learned, well, they asked me, can you make this a 501c3 and can you write grants? And I was trying to do all this stuff. I learned that stuff from YouTube. Google. I watched, I watched <laughs> YouTube, Sarah. Yeah. Listen, listen, I, wrote, I wrote grant. I wrote a business plan. And what I wrote 501c3. I just wrote my second one. I learned that from YouTube. Right. Yeah. So I did all that. And I just kept walking through these doors of opportunity. So like, then I found myself like pre- Right. Yeah. The opioid epidemic going on. You got the state of Pennsylvania where Governor Tom Wolf created these centers of excellence, which is a program that focused on opiate use disorder clients and assertive casework out in the field. And like this is I, I never even heard of that stuff, but I'm there like as a recovery cowboy. Right. Driving <laughs> around my town. I got my whole car decaled. It was crazy. It's this red Dodge Dart. But to me, this made perfect sense. It was his phoenix on there. Like we rise from the ashes. And he was big mm. hands on the hood, right? And I'm driving mm-hmm. around trying to talk people into getting clean. Like, listen, you want to go tramping? Get in a car. Let's go. You don't have food? Yeah. Let's go. And I'm driving around <laughs> oh just saving lives and just being of service, right? Yeah. And like I said, that was that's what I was doing. People noticed me. They put me in the paper. I've been in the paper a million damn dang times, right? I mean, it was like time and time again. Over this, I've been clean almost 10 years, probably been in the paper 14 times, all over the CBS, all kind of news, all kind of stuff. And it was just from just showing up and being in the service, people take you took notice. And the next thing I know, right, I'm at Club Serenity, the agency that I was an intensive outpatient at, I was a client, I couldn't stay clean, comes in the, uh, I mean, she's now the chief operating officer, Cheryl Emma, and at the time, the, the supervisor of the Center of Excellence, right? a program that does what I was doing before it was even created, right? I'm running around saving people. I never got paid nothing. They come in, they said, listen, we know what you're doing. We want you to come work for us and we're going to pay you. And I fought them. I said, you don't got to pay me. I'm going to keep doing this. Joey, you need money to survive. You need (laughs) to work. No, I can't get paid. Joe, think about this. And I was like, huh, I walked outside my office and I looked up and there was a sign that said, expect a miracle. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I put that sign up there and huh, maybe the miracle's me. And then I just, I decided to work for them and I've, I'm still working there, right? I'm now the project supervisor of the drug and alcohol program in the center, you know? So like, and I was a client, right? And I'm, I'm working mm-hmm. on my doctorate. So that was from being of service. That was from, right? Nobody taught me that. I told you, I watched YouTube and I was at some of these right places at the right time. And this was like tons of experiences in between all this that happened, but it was simply just being of service. And there you go. Beautiful thing. The full circle moment too, when you realized yeah. I'm now working for the place that I was going through this process with. Yeah. Incredible. And it's really is. It's just that one step in front of the other that leads you so far. It's 
interesting too, because had you asked Joey of 30 years ago, where you'd be today, (laughs) it probably would be like, no, but to have those little mini micro steps in between. Mm -hmm. So many of us, we see something that we aspire to, or maybe we don't even aspire to, like maybe in the moment, you know, we talk about a ladder. Oh, what's the word? It's basically like, you can't even conceptualize what it is to be here. And so you kind of have to build your beliefs like ladder rungs. And so maybe it's like, if you talked to to yourself 30 years ago, it wouldn't even, it would just be got to get to the next belief ladder rung. Can't even Mm -hmm. conceptualize something like this, but all those small steps turn into something so incredible that we totally underestimate the possibilities for. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happened. And still amazes me. I, I forget that. Like I was a client there and I'm trying to be a director there. So like, it's crazy as that is. Yeah. Yeah. I could have never dreamt this stuff up. It's just Amazing. amazes me. So I saw a quote you shared and I think it was on your website that said, our struggles do not define us or they rather refine us into who we are today. Yeah. Mindset is such a critical element of everything that we do in my perspective anyways what are some of the thoughts or the beliefs if you think about that joey at that time where you're just kind of making that transition what are some of the thoughts or the beliefs that someone has to adopt for moving into that recovery state of mind jeez i mean it's just me just being able to just accept whatever happens and accept my collateral damage from the past and and be able to just move through experiences and just I was always very ambitious. And even in the dark times, when I was ready to give up, I would somehow just move through these things. But like that, I've just continually, like I said, people get clean now. I'm not saying everybody does this, but some people you see them get clean, they, they just choose and they don't have to do anything, right? They could just, you know, do whatever. That's normal to them. To me, like I kept, I kept just walking through stuff. You know, I have a, I'm in my bedroom and I have a, a governor's pardon, right? Sitting right up on the wall. I didn't have to probably do that, but I just, you know, my friends tease me. They're like, hey, who's the cleanest person now in the valley? Because I, I got no record. But like, I'm the guy who, right, robbed a gas station in active addiction and almost killed myself. This is all in the book, right? And then walked across the street to the police station and turned myself in. And I'm the guy that like never thought I'd get a job because I had criminal charges. I'm the guy that the mindset was like, listen, I'm going to continue to walk through this stuff. And if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to run through that. So that's what I did. And I'm sitting here with the governor's pardon. I don't even got a parking ticket, right? Everything gone. And listen, I got kicked out of the army with an other than honorable discharge, right? Scarlet letter. Because why? Because I couldn't stop using drugs. I don't even know I was an addict. I'm in the process now of getting that discharge upgraded. I don't have to, I didn't have to do that stuff, but I want that hanging on the wall. But when a client comes in and says, hey, how do you do that? And I'll say, let me show you. Hmm. And like, that's the same mindset. What I run my life in, I'm far from perfect. But like I said, my struggles don't define me. Hmm. Like, look, the pardon, all those experiences, it's refined me into who I am today. And that's why I put that comment, because that's exactly what it has. Because if I would have just let that stuff define me, then I wouldn't have walked through that stuff. But it, it like, it kind of made me in the person. Like, I thank God for everything, the bad and the good. I don't care. It all had to happen because mm-hmm. I wouldn't even have been here, nor did I, I, 
not only would I not be here, it's like I would never even wish to be here. I never wanted to be a social worker. Yeah. Another chapter in my book is quit choosing and get chosen. And that's how my life happened. That's how social work happened. That's why like social work chose me. And it was built to getting refined and walking through stuff and making me who I am. Like I said, it's a journey and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it really is. Because we th- we talk about, you look at different people and their experiences and what someone is given or handed on a golden platter. We've got people that are, you know, been born into the greatest situations, lots of love, lots of financial opportunity, whatever. And then you look at what they're doing and you're like, how did that, you know, whatever yeah. they're experiencing. And then you've got someone who grew up in the worst of conditions so much trauma and then they go on to be you know valedictorian or president or whatever it is and yeah. it really is it's not our circumstances that define us it's really our our thought about it and our ability like you said to be able to shift your mindset so that you can really challenge yourself and rise above which is so cool yeah. it does take a an element of grit probably at the beginning yeah. to kind of almost yeah. prove yeah. yourself wrong but, or whatever you know or prove yourself right but a lot yeah. of courage Definitely. Courage and, and humble. Yeah. Like I, I never thought a lot of this stuff, I, I didn't know I was going to make it through. I just had mm-hmm. some faith that I, I might make it through this stuff, right? I, none of this stuff was like guaranteed. I, I just I just kept doing it because like, I don't know, these doors just keep opening and I just keep walking through them. Oh, it's like, listen, listen to how this happened. I didn't even put this in my book. This is another great experience. So I'm in school, right? I've been in school. I get went through active addiction. I accrued like a zillion dollars in loans because I, you know, I, I couldn't get college, right? I couldn't show up to college for a decade on active addiction. Then I found myself finally getting through college because I had some faith. I'm like, I am never going to be able to afford none of this. I'm going to be in debt forever. And I just started my doctorate. It's like a zillion dollars I owe. And then I just kept, right? I had some grit. I said, listen, seen this thing. I kept looking online and they had this, this one kind of loan forgiveness through like DDAP, Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs. I just applied for it. I'm like the only, one of the only people that, that I know got it, right? They just paid $90,000. They almost paid all my loans off, right? It was like, listen, Joey, this is what I, it's pretty much the summary of what happened. You go to school, you just show up in school, you do well, you go through that. I got your loans. And that's what happened, right? It was like, God, universe, whatever you call it, like, boom, right? All that stuff's paid off. That's crazy. And that's another thing, you know, people ask me, like, I want to go to school. I have all this money. Listen, I don't have any money anyway, right? I don't have money. I just showed up and and these struggles like made me who I am, right? I thought I didn't want to go to school. I barely graduated high school. Now I found out like, listen, I love school and I'm a nerd. You know what I mean? And I do well. And, And next thing you know, Someone says, hey, you know what? We're going to pay off your loans. Don't worry about that. We got you. And that's how it happened, right? I didn't, I didn't do anything special, but I did something special, right? I walked through some faith. I did the work and I showed up for life, right? Life's mm-hmm. like always been there. I just showed up and I just, I believed in myself, right? I believed in myself and I just gave myself a chance, even with a disease of addiction that's still, right? That still could kill me today, right? I'm still an addict, right? I'm always an addict. And it just says, no, why go to school? You, you know, you ain't going to do any, you're not going to do well. What are you trying? 
And I just, I had to like push through that and I did it. Why get a doctorate? Why get a governor's pardon? Why do all that? Why not? And that's what I mm, did. I love that. Why not? That's something that's been at its core. I think a friend and friend of thread through my life too, is yeah. that conversation. And I think if you have a growth mindset or you're adopting a growth mindset or nurturing a growth mindset in yourself, it's that question. Well, why? Well, why not? And yeah. it's that, I think maybe there's, I don't know, an internal determination or, or whatever, but it really can turn into such a beautiful thing. And to your point too, it's so interesting because it's that whole concept of things are happening to me versus things are happening for me. Yeah. And you clearly, like listening to you speak, I can tell you are, you know, you were taking the steps, didn't honestly necessarily know where it was going to end up or where it was going to lead. But with that scholarship or the repayment program, it's a perfect example of taking those small steps towards something, not knowing maybe the final destination, but knowing that things are happening for you. And maybe it's going to be really crappy for a while. (laughs) And, but knowing that there's something on the other side and, and those are the experiences that you have, like the repayment Mm-hmm. That just happens to people. It just happens for people that take that attitude and that mindset and take the small steps forward. My experience. Yeah. I still can't believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, you never know. And it just shows you in life. It's, it's like, if you could just walk through the door, your door of opportunity and not worry about other people's doors, right? And not complain and get through. And like, you never know. The sky's the limit. Like you could do anything, right? Mm-hmm. I was an addict. I almost when readers read my book and they read how I was just a second away from killing myself. Right. And instead, like I sit before you with all these experiences, right. I barely graduated high school, just put forth the work. Boom. There you go. And, and like school doesn't have to be your dream, but whatever your dream is, go for the dream because like you never know what's possible. You just never know. And you just never know. The time's going to pass anyway. Yeah. Like you're going to sit here 10 years from today, listening to this episode. And if you don't take action or take steps forward, the time's going to pass anyway. Might as well do something fun with it. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to say on my, on my epitaph, this guy tried the hardest he could. And he tried to save as many lives as he could. And that's all I want to be known that I just did whatever I could. and, And I took the chances and I'd rather just be able to look back and just know that I did the best I could with what I yeah, and what an incredible legacy to to leave just for for yourself. Because I think a lot of people, when they're at the end, whether they know it or like, if, especially if they know it, like if somebody gets yeah. sick, you're reflecting on a lot of these things and you're like, did I do the best with what I could? Did I make a difference? Did I, what did I do? It's that whole thing about, you know, no, nobody's going to care what's in your bank account or whatever. It's the, yeah. the legacy you leave and, and to be able to close out the chapter of of life as we know it with that assurance that there were some pretty dark times, but you did honestly make an, an effort to move in the direction of how you could serve at your highest is such an, I mean, I think that's all, that's what we're all going to be <laughs> thinking at the end. Right. That's it. So, yeah. So is there a level when you think about addictions at its core mm-hmm. and why people start using, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whatever it is, is there something that we need to get to the root of internally in order to start healing or break that cycle? 
like, is it getting clear on what trauma is, is triggering it or, or do you know? I mean, I feel that like, once again, like I'm not the expert, but what I feel is that like something in my life activates the disease of addiction, right? Something had to activate it, whether it's trauma, whether it's just something that something that happens like, and it could be so many different things, you know, just looking back. I mean, I got bullied. I mean, just look, I come from a, a good family. Like there's a lot of mental abuse. It was very dysfunctional. I mean, there was love, right? Very authoritarian parenting style, which is like, I'm so opposite of my parents. I love them, but I'm not, right? I, I'm a loving, authoritative, and that's just how I am. So I come from a family where there's a lot of dogma. And I, I, I encompass that principle in my book a lot. Right. Dogma is a rigid, unbending doctrine. You do it this way or this way isn't good enough. And mm. our country's full of stuff like that. Right. So that being said is I come from that. So feelings of not good enough. OK, so let's just think of this perfect storm brewing up. We have feelings of not good enough. We have getting bullied every day at high school. Right. Just feelings of low self-esteem and you almost feel like you can't defend yourself because you come from a family. Don't you dare do it. You know what I mean? I tell my daughter, someone hits you, you get them, right? You defend yourself. And, you know, yes. Like it or not, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't want them to be me. I don't want her, my daughter to be me. I want her to like always make sure she defends herself. And like I said is, and I'm not going to tell her to provoke a fight, but the truth is, is like, you don't sit there and let someone hit you because they're going to continue to do that. And I could give you four years of high school experience of that happening. And you know what? Guess what? I turned to addiction, right? Because I had a lot of pain. I don't want that to happen to her. So I want to tell her to defend herself and don't let someone hit you. And that's just what I believe, right? So you think of all that stuff I just told you happening. You think Mm. of getting bullied. You think of authoritarian parenting style, which creates dogma, right? It's, you know what I mean? Like, and then all this stuff going on, hating myself, trying to learn how to blend in because you just, you don't want to get picked on and all these things. You don't want to feel. How do you not feel, Joey? Find a way. Mm. And I found ways. And I like, yeah. I, sometimes I just want to kill myself. And then, so you have all that happening. And right, you don't know you're an addict, right? Because it gets activated in you. It gets like the, the disease of addiction it gets activated in you. And then you find yourself just looking at outside things to make an inside problem feel better. And like, how do I not feel if the problem is feelings, right? So I need drugs to make me feel good. Now, if once I found drugs, right, alcohol, weed, right, marijuana, whatever, TAC, whatever you call it. And then so you, you, you find that stuff. Now, I need drugs to make you feel good. But like your question said, is like, why do I need something to make me feel good? Why don't I feel good in my own skin? That's why, because that perfect storm is brewing. This is just, this is how I conceptualize how, what happened to me. You know what I mean? So then I found myself entering the army, right? Trying to do whatever, using all this different stuff and not even knowing I'm an addict. Like I said, not knowing what recovery, I didn't know what recovery was till like 2009, right? I never even, even heard of what recovery was. And then you don't know what treatment really is till around 09. And so you don't, you don't know anything. Even the army didn't even. The army just, that's in my book too. They, they just they just kicked me out and just stigmatized me even worse and just leave me on the side of the highway. Like, you, it was crazy how that happened. 
I still got like trauma that stuff from that experience. And so you have all this stuff and it just, and there you go, right? The disease is active. It was, you think of the seeds of addiction planted long before the drug, right? There was no drug picked up and we're getting bullied, right? I didn't really know, you know what I mean? So the drugs kind of, pres- I don't want to glamorize using drugs, but you know, mm-hmm. in a way it prevented me from killing myself. Yeah. And, I mean, it, I might've been slowly committing suicide with drugs, but like I said, is I wanted to kill myself, but I never, I don't know. I didn't know what to do or, cause I didn't have any answers. I just didn't want to feel cause my feelings were bad and I wasn't comfortable with my own skin. So once I found alcohol, progressed into marijuana, and progressed into harder things. Once I got in the military, then I still don't even know I'm an addict. I think it's maybe I just need to use correctly. I'm not using right. If I just use right, I'll be okay. Because I don't need to feel. Because if I'm feeling, as soon as the feelings get me, then I'm back to that. I'm back to high school. And I'm, I can't feel like that. Never going to feel like that again. Never. And that lasted for 21 years. That makes so much sense, though, because emotional intelligence, or at least how I define it, is the ability to process your feelings. It's not something like, you know, we go to a learn how to be emotionally intelligent class Mm -hmm. in school, but the ability to feel a feeling and process it in the moment without pushing it down or ignoring it or, you know, sitting it to the back (laughs) wherever you can't remember it has been. So key, I think, is in being able to move through those experiences. Like bullying, we all have skeletons in our closet and we all have bad experiences in our past. If you are an adult and you have avoided all bad experiences, (laughs) pat on the back to you because I don't think anyone has. But, and I think especially probably as men too, I don't know the statistics of addictions or at least statistics are, I don't know whether they're really that right anyways, but because men are traditionally told to man up, mm-hmm. just, you know, don't feel your feelings. And for me, I actually worked in protective services before in, in the fire department. And I think probably the army would be interesting as well. Kind of a similar experience where you're seeing a lot of pretty trauma inducing stuff. And it's the same thing, the culture in fire services or the greater protective mm-hmm. services, at least in my experience is to, you know, shove it down, have a drink yeah. after the bad call, right? You go out to a car accident, come back, have a drink afterwards. Mm-hmm. And with the army, it's so interesting because it's almost like do what you need to do in order to stay sane. And to your point about the bullying, it's probably a lot of, like you said, maybe it kept you alive longer because it's a little bit of numbing out or giving yourself the the good feelings that you needed me yeah. in order to keep going. But with the army too, it's just like stay in a place that like do whatever you need to do to cope, but don't go too far. <laughs> and it's like, how do you stay in that level? I've seen that you in fire services. It's like, yeah. you know, we've got some of my coworkers that, you know, went down our route with drugs and alcohol. And it's like, it was a coping mechanism to a point And then there's some threshold that's crossed, you know, and it's like, how do you manage that? And without having the emotional intelligence that we develop over time, but when you, in certain family scenarios, or even, I don't think in any family scenario, I mean, everyone has something messed up about their childhood that they internalize somehow. And without being able to develop those skills, like it's hard. Yeah. So that makes sense that that's kind of the, the process or, or whatnot. 
So what are the most important steps? You know, can we kind of bring this back and look at some of the work that you're doing? And I don't know if this is in your book or if you talk about this publicly, but from your perspective, what are some of the most important steps that we can take or obstacles that we need to overcome as a society, as a community to ensure that no addict is left behind and that all people have the opportunity to lead a healthy and a fulfilling life? I don't know if there's anything. I would say just continue to educate. Well, first, continue with the awareness, right? The awareness of what's going on and also with the education, more outreach. That's why we're, you know, we're doing a huge outreach event in, in August called Rock for Recovery. Like that's the stuff we need to continue. And we need like our professionals, the physicians, the paramedics, the firemen, right? All those that are affected. Like, and just to know that like, I understand why there's stigma in certain areas, right? When I overdosed, right? <laughs> Paramedic revives me with Narcan. I'm pissed off. You saved my life. You gave me, you made me dope sick, right? I understand that as I cuss you out, right? And you saved my life. I don't want to save, save my life. I want to die. Like mm. that's stuff. The, the crazy stuff that people say, right? Me. That's what I said. So I know. But I could see the other end is like, listen, we have to just come to a meet people halfway and like just quit with the stigma and quit with the labeling, the stereotyping. and like I said, it's just don't give up on someone. And like I said, that's why I put those examples of, in my book. Like, I want paramedics to read that. They're going to see how I was stigmatized. I want physicians to read that, right? My co-author is Dr. Scott Cook, right? He's my friend. He's the chief medical officer of, of a zillion different places. He's known as the traveling doctor. He's, a, like I said, a, a great person in this field. So he knows, right? We're going to speak to several hospital staffs about some of this. So like, they just need to see that this stuff's real. I know we're not going to just eliminate stigma, but the answer is to reduce it. The answer mm-hmm. is to get people aware. The answer is to educate people. And then that way, when they see this is happening, they're going to say, oh, I remember that experience in Joey's book. That really does happen. The book's not the answer, but the book is, a, is an outline to like at least help and I think that's what we need. We need a lot of advocates. They got to continue to advocate, right, for reducing stigma, more outreach events, continuing that, and professionals attending those. And I just think that's that's like you know, just the outline, along with a zillion other things. But for now, it's just it'll help. And if we could just save one, that's all that matters. Mm. Yeah, and I think the education piece too. And it's like providing that lens yeah into the empathy that's required yep for someone who's never walked that path before yeah just being able to increase a little or see show a little bit of what's you know a different perspective so that that for example medical provider can show up with a framework of empathy or a sh- empathy that they've borrowed from your book by being yeah. able to see into that perspective so that's a beautiful thing Oh my gosh, this is such a good conversation. Thank you so much. Tell me where, for everyone who's listening, where can people find you, follow you? All All right. Well, first you can look at my website. It is noatticleftbehind.life. I'm on all the social media sites, Facebook, find me Joey Pagano, No Attic Left Behind, Instagram, Grateful and Clean, Twitter, Grateful Clean 7, TikTok, you can find me Grateful and Clean all of them, LinkedIn, Joseph Pagano. So you can see all of those places and they're all going to direct you with blogs about me 
and information about the book, links to Dr. Cook's page, the traveling doctor. Like you could find all this information that I'm talking about in this podcast, all on these sites, which once again, most importantly, it leads you to that book. Like I said, April 25th, no attic left behind. Amazing. So make sure to catch this incredible story about the stigma of addiction and recovery medicine told through the experiences of Joey Pagano and Scott A. Cook or Dr. Scott A. Cook. No Attic Left Behind is a recovery medicine state of mind. It's going to be released in stores and online April 25th. Make sure you pick it up. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks for being here, Joey. Thank you, sir. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Deliciously Alive podcast with me today. We hope it brought value to you and created a bit of inspiration and encouragement that will move you into action. For more, you can head on over to deliciouslyalive.com forward slash guide to get our free resource guide that will show you actionable ways to live an incredible life, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would love it too or leave a rating and review. It means the world to us and gives us feedback on what to do more of. That's all for this episode. So till next time, stay curious, be brave, and take inspired action toward that delicious life meant especially for you.